Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today you've got me. I'm teaching. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapters 5 through 8 of Romans. Last week, David Flat he taught us on chapters 1 through 4. I invite you to listen to that first, of course. But chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, there is so much to go through. And, and to be very frank with you, there's no way I can cover it all or even cover really more than just a very small amount of it. Chapter 8 in particular, it's considered to be by many one of the best you know, chapters in the entire Bible. John Piper, in fact, did an entire year on chapter 8 alone, and we're going to give it about nine and a half minutes. So, um, so there are some limitations to doing a study like this, but I do think it offers the ability to look at the themes and the narrative and look at Romans from a 20 or 30,000 foot view. So I think in that way, this is going to be an excellent series. I'm excited to get into this. Thank you for tuning in, for listening, um, and here we go with Romans 5 through 8. Okay, so as a little introduction, we'll talk a little bit about work, how work has been for you guys this week. Um, I've had a really stressful week at work, and I've had a hard time finding peace. And so every work week's a little different. In the summer, as an orthodontist, it's really busy. And so it gets to the point where I can't do other projects during the day. But I have another business uh, that, that occasionally kind of raises to the surface, and those have to get done in the midst of a day where they shouldn't be able to get done, but I have to find a way. And so just had a lot of just real kind of turmoil this week and just the, just the inability to reach a point of something being done and in that way just not feeling any peace at all and just really stressed and finally kind of resolved that issue Friday night and I just kind of like melted into the bed. Uh, it was like my, I told Anna, it was like my battery just like hit empty. You know, I just like fell asleep just immediately. So it's actually watching videos about the draft. So <laughs> it took it out of me. I couldn't take it. So. Um, but so just kind of that, that mindset, that kind of like that, um, I think a lot of us feel this place where we, maybe we're going through life and things get tough, uh, we're, we're dealing with some sort of suffering of one, one thing or another and we just cannot find peace. And I would, I would think that that's something that all of us deal with at one time or another. Sort of like longing for something that would release that, right? And I think these chapters, and so we're in Romans 5 through 8, I think they address that, all right? I think they address sort of that feeling of, unease and that desire for peace. Okay, and so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about assurance. We're going to talk about hope, and I think you'll enjoy it. So I want to real quickly go through Romans 1 through 4. This is what David talked about last week, and you'll see on your poster, I know this thing is like crazy, okay, uh, but you'll see that these ideas are summarized here, and we'd gone through this uh, last week. We're going to go through this section this week. Uh, but here are the points that he took from Romans 1 through 4. Uh, all humanity is trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. Romans 2, rescue won't happen by obeying the laws of the Torah. There's 613 of them. That's not going to help. Romans 3, God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. And then in Romans 4, this was done to create the faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham. Um, and in simplest terms, I would say, I'm going to turn this light down. It's a little bright. In simplest terms, I would say that what David talked about last week was separation or sin, and he also talked about justification, how we're made right or how we're made uh, okay in the eyes of God, and then this week we're going to talk about sanctification. All right, so sanctification is not maybe as common a word, but it's the idea that day after day we're made more like Jesus, okay? Um, I also want to, we're going to watch a video. Hey, guys. on this poster. And so these posters, I know we've been showing these a lot and we've been talking a lot about the Bible Project, 
I want to give a little bit of background on this group and I thought it was interesting. So I bought, there's actually a coffee table book that's got every one of these posters and it's a huge book. It's like as big as this, if not a little bit bigger. And uh, I got a little newsletter because I bought the book. It's like 50 bucks. I really recommend it. Um, but I got a little newsletter that kind of explained the background on the Bible Project. I thought you would find it interesting. So the two guys that are in these videos that you hear also, their names are Tim Mackey and John Collins. They're up in Portland, so in your neck of the woods. Do you know these guys? No. Okay. Do you know them personally? Like Idaho is like Portland and vice versa, right? No. Okay. Um, so they, they wanted to make these short videos that explained every book of the Bible. This was in 2012. They had this goal, like, well, we'll do every book of the Bible. We'll do it in these little videos that we've seen that we'll show here in a second. They launched their YouTube channel in 2014, and at the time, it was taking them three months to do each video. Uh, Francis Chan, if you know who Francis Chan is, he wrote uh, Crazy Love, and he's got a big ministry. seems to be a really great guy. In January of 2015, he reached out to them and said, I love your videos, and I want to challenge you. These videos are taking you three months each. Let's do the entire Bible all 66 books in a year. <laughs> They're like, okay. Um, and so they agreed to do it. I think it took them about 18 months, but still, this was a, a big moment for them. And so they collaborated together and they started the series called Read Scripture. And so that's what all these are from. It's Francis Chan with these two guys, Tim and John. Um, the coincidence, the reason I bring this up is the first video they made was for Romans. It was the first book that they started with. So this is some of the first work that they did. Last year alone, this, their, their videos got 32 million views. Uh, it's been translated into dozens of languages, and there's people all over the world that are reading the Bible, learning more about the Bible through these videos. So I love them. Hopefully that history is a little bit uh, interesting to you because it's happening right now. They've got new videos coming out, so you should be uh, kind of following their channel. But let's, uh, with the poster, if you'll kind of follow along, it's about a three-and-a-half-minute video, and it's going to go through this section. So let's see if it'll work. So if you want to follow along, we're going to be, as you might expect, chapter 5 and then on through to 8. Um, I'm going to have every Bible verse that I'm going to focus on on the screen. So if I were you, I would just probably watch. Uh, but if you want to get your Bible out, that's great. And of course, we can't hit everything, but we're going to hit the high points. Okay, so this first section of Romans 5, um, I have it labeled and in the ESV study Bible. It's called Peace with God Through Faith. So the opening verse, I'm just going to read it, is, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the reason I started with this idea of peace is because I feel like it's something that our world really desperately wants more of right now. It's something that I always want. Um, it's part of my personality that I will do whatever it takes in that moment to get to peace or to get to kind of like a relaxation point, if you will. Um, I even on the way to church here, instead of reading through my notes, I called uh, somebody to talk through something so that I could get to a point of peace. Um, and I did, so I feel much better. Uh, but it's something that I, I really covet. Like, I really at, at all times want to be peaceful, and I think that's true of a lot of us. Um, the thing that we read here, though, is, is that we have peace with God. This is not just like a subjective feeling, like, oh, I feel peaceful. This is truly like peace. As we think about like war, we are no longer at odds with God, okay, because He has justified us. Because through His grace and in our faith, we are now justified, okay? Um, and that means that we don't just feel better, that we are truly at peace. We are no longer at odds with the one who made us, the one that created all this. And that's a big deal. That should give me more peace than me having to call somebody because there was like a little bit of turmoil, okay? Like this should give me true and deep uh, and meaningful peace. Uh, it reminds me of the peace you read about in Philippians where it talks about, and the peace of God which uh, surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Obviously also written by Paul, and I think this is that kind of peace that he's talking about. Um, 
So on into verses 2 and 3, uh, it says that we should rejoice in the hope of two things, the hope of the glory of God and also in our sufferings. I think it makes sense to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, like that's easy. That's like, uh, man, I'm, I'm excited that at some point in the future I get these amazing things. It's a lot harder if you're asked to rejoice in our present sufferings, okay? Uh, he lays out this little order, though, that I think makes sense of suffering, and we're not going to go into how suffering makes sense today, but it, it has this really nice way of explaining it where he says that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, and that's why we should reduce in it, or rejoice in it. rather. Um, and I'll be honest that when I suffer, um, maybe it produces endurance and character, but it doesn't always produce the last part, which is uh, the good part, which is the hope. Okay? It doesn't produce in me joy when I'm suffering. Uh, even though that's what we're told that it should do. Um, and so I guess the, the point of all this is that we should be joyful because we are at peace with the one that we should be most focused on. The war that we should be most worried about is not the one with somebody that we work, that we work with or someone across social media or the, because our basketball team is losing. You know, but those are, the, those are the, the wars that we worry about and that, that, that occupy our mind, and, uh, which is kind of crazy. It should be our potential war with God, the one who created us, the one that's going to judge us one day, that should keep our minds occupied. Um, and with that, we have peace and we have hope and we should be joyful for that. All right, so I've got a question for you. I realize what happened. I picked the wrong pointer, so this is going to be annoying. So I think I'm going to change it. Because if I don't do it now, it's going to bother me the rest of the time. I have two of the exact same clickers, so I think it makes sense what happened. but. Or maybe it's just something in this room. I don't know. All right. Okay. Let's look at verses. Uh, let's look at this question. Let me ask you this before we go into these verses. Uh, and it's a rhetorical question because I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this. But answer for yourself. Would you die for someone you love? If forced to, would you die for someone you love? Yeah, yeah I think most people would say yes. Now, if you do it or not, we don't know. Hopefully, you'll never be asked to do that. But I think most people say, yeah, I would die for someone I love. What about this? Would you die for someone who deserved it? Maybe somebody who was a really good person. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> like, I don't know. just depends, I guess, right? That's probably how most everyone answered that. Maybe some of you are like, I would not die for anyone. Okay? I know that very, very clearly. I want to live. Um, the point that's made here is, is that, uh, and, and Paul makes this point, he's like, some would die for a righteous man, meaning someone that followed the law. Maybe more would die for a good man, meaning someone that had done good things. Um, but Christ didn't die for that. He died for people who did not deserve it. Okay, So he died for us and the fact that we're sinners. Um, in Romans 8 it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're sinners, we're also like enemies of him in that sense, and he died for us still. In 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so this is a uniqueness to Christ's sacrifice and his death for us, is, is that like for most of us, when we're asked, would you die for someone you love? We'd say, yeah, sure. Christ, he loved us, right? We know that of God. We know that of Jesus. He loved us. So he died for us. That's not unique. I think most people would do that. But the fact that he died for people who didn't deserve it is unique and it's special. Okay. All right, so then he talks about this contrast between Adam and Jesus. 
And so if you're reading here, you'd read about this, and he brings this up throughout the rest of this book. Um, but what he's doing is he's trying to strike a contrast between Adam, the first man, and then Christ, the new man. It's also called the second Adam. Okay? And so uh, we are all in Adam by physical birth. And so in that grander sense of the term, Adam means humanity. We are in Adam, whether you like it or not, because we're born. Um, but only those that choose a new birth are in Christ. So that's the, the contrast there. And so Adam, like all humanity, he kind of represents, he kind of typifies humanity. We have all chosen sin and selfishness, and as a consequence, we all face God's judgment. Uh, Jesus, though, is a new Adam, and he lived in faithful obedience to God through his act of sacrificial love, and he offers life as a gift to others. And so you could look at it like this, and Paul does, is that there is death in Adam, but there is life in Christ. Okay, so those are the differences between those two. Um, something that gets brought up in this conversation, and if you're reading it, it's what kind of comes to mind first is this idea of original sin, which I don't know kind of what church you grew up in or what background you're in, and this may not be something that you ever think about, but there's a couple different readings of this section that I think are important to talk through as we go through it. Uh, there's this idea of total depravity, meaning that everyone is sin or sinful or that there's um, and hopeless in that sense, and then also original sin, meaning that we are born with sin, so that the day that George came out, you know, he had sin on him, whether that was through my sin or whether that was just the human condition or whatever, that's kind of the theology, kind of more seen in the Catholic Church. Um, this is, and, and it may be true of George, he, he bites people and he's proud of it, so um, he's sick this morning, so I was going to talk about him, but now he's here, I kind of have to. So he'll bite people, and we tell him not to, but his response is, I bite. It's like, which I think it's like his, he's like in an existential crisis where that is who he is. He's a biter, and a biter bites, you know? So he's trying to, he's trying to work through that. Um, so yeah, he, maybe he, he has original sin, but everyone else, no. Um, so original sin, and this, these theological things are either interesting or they're not, but to me it's interesting, like where did this come from? Who started this? Uh, it really originated with St. Augustine. And it's based on verses in multiple spots. And if you read them in isolation, I think it's pretty compelling. But uh, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and Psalm 51, they're all different levels of kind of this idea. Uh, but really where it started was based on a mistranslation of this verse uh, in Romans 5, 12. And so Jerome translated um, the original Greek into Latin, and that would have been the Bible that uh, St. Augustine was reading. And I won't go into all the Greek, but he kind of mismodified Adam as it relates to this verse. Um, and that's probably more than you wanted to know. But therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, the men there is actually men and women. So it's not just like it's a male thing. But uh, what I would say of this is that this is not a statement on original sin. This is not a statement saying that because Adam sinned, everyone now is marked as a sinner. The idea is, is that Adam is a type of the person who is to come and, and the men and the women who are to come. It says that in verse 14. And what Paul is saying, and this is what you want to get away from this, uh, this is what you want to take from this, is, is that sin is common to all people because the desire to sin is common to all people. Okay? Um, the, wall, the word that Paul uses is sarkikos. It's like flesh. And so it's the sinful nature. It's the fleshly desire that we all have. Okay, so George's desire to bite is something that's just natural to him. I guess because he has teeth, and if people are ignoring him, you know, he's going to bite, and biters bite. Right, George? Um, but it's not that, you know, he was guilty of sin before he bit somebody. Okay? And so, uh, anyway, so hopefully that makes sense. 
All right, so let's move on into chapter six. All right, we're going to start with this uh, idea is, is that um, Paul starts with this idea, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? So you, you, if you're familiar with this section, you know this, but kind of the background of it I think is interesting because at the time we would have had people that had followed the Torah their entire life. So the Torah has 613 laws, and for every day of one's life as, as a Jew, they would have followed these laws. As you can imagine, that would get kind of old, okay? And certainly along the lines, they would have broken them, but they would have felt this burden of the law on them their entire lives. You might also imagine that if you had all these rules, and I've gone through this, like think about when I'm in dental school. The day I graduate dental school, I'm like, this is great. You f like literally feel the burden being lifted off your shoulders. Or like when you're a senior in high school and you finish and people go and they like throw all their books in a fire and burn them. Do y'all ever do that? that that's like very, <laughs> he's like, no, I would never. There were people that did that, right? Have you ever heard of people doing that, taking their notes or whatever, just getting rid of them? I would take my notes and just throw them in the trash. Like at the end of the day, it was this great like moment. I kind of want to go back and do it now. It's not unlike this, is that feeling that burden of the law and just, just letting it off your shoulders, you're like, oh, I'm free. And people took that to mean a little bit more extreme, I'm free to sin or to do whatever I want. It talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 how there was a man in the church that was sleeping with his stepmother, and that takes it a little too far. And so you might imagine of this guy's like, hey, we're free, uh, stepmom, so let's just see what happens. Um, but what Paul is saying is, is that um, because we're saved by grace, it doesn't mean that anything goes, right? So that misses the point. Uh, and, and the verse, in fact, is, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so we are not only supposed to imitate Christ, like that Christ is some sort of like, like Michael Jordan. I'm a basketball player. I want to be like Mike. I want to I I play like Michael Jordan, or I want to play like LeBron James, or whatever. No, no, no. We're not supposed to just imitate Jesus. We're supposed to be Jesus. And when we talk about sanctification, it is a process by which we become, we become more and more like Jesus. So he should be our goal. He should be the one that we, we try to be like. But if we're in Christ, we seek to be as him. And so it would go against our core identity if we woke up some morning and we're like, I feel like sinning. I feel like sleeping with my stepmom today. That goes completely against who we are, right, as someone who's in Christ. Um, and so it comes down to this. And this is the, the kind of the terminology that he uses. And I don't know that it's like a perfect... Um, concept, but he talks about how we're slaves. Goodness gracious. Okay. And we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. And he says in 15 through 16, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So we are one of two things. We are slaves to sin meaning that sin is our master and that we answer to it and do what it tells us to do, or we're slaves to righteousness, meaning that we answer to righteousness. And being a slave to sin, what the wages at the end of that job is, is death, okay? Um, in Christ, though, if we're truly in Christ, we are free from that. So if we're free from sin, why would we still answer to the master of sin? That's the point. So we're not slaves to sin, so we should not be answering. We should not be waking up every day and saying, tell me what to do, sin, because I'm here to answer. We should be answering to righteousness because that leads to sanctification and eternal life. And then the verse that connects with that is, is a really famous one, maybe one of the most famous in this section, uh, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so I'd be remiss if in a church of Christ I didn't talk about baptism. It's here. We've got to talk about it, Eric. We're going to talk a ton. 
Um, and I'll say that, you know, in terms of tent posts of the Church of Christ movement or just the Restoration Movement in general, baptism is one of those. There are other tent posts that for me personally are not as essential or as important that I wouldn't consider primary doctrine that I might disagree with you on, but this is not one that I feel like falls into that category, okay? Um, I don't think that we should bet our salvation on this issue, but I think it's an important issue. And it does show up in here. One of the, you know, maybe the best baptism verses is right here in Romans 6, 3 through 4, and it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So really beautiful metaphor that set up this whole idea of death and burial and resurrection and new life. Um, I want to talk a little bit about these three words. Um, because the word baptism, you may know this history and you may not, and if you've heard it 15 times, I apologize, but um, it was in the 1600s that translators for King James were faced with making what became the King James Bible. And the word baptizo is the actual word that shows up when you see baptized. What that word literally means is to dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge, or to cleanse by dipping or submerging. What they chose to do for political reasons, because James was a fan of sprinkling or you know that sort of thing was to transliterate the word so they created a new word which was baptism now had they translated it correctly or as they would have translated other words instead of baptism it would have said uh, don't you know that all of us who have been immersed or uh, let's say dipped repeatedly or submerged it wouldn't have been baptized but what we get instead is a, a different word and then that kind of sets up this pattern by which people misunderstand what should be said here. So there are words for sprinkling and to pour. They are rantizo, which means to sprinkle or to cleanse by sprinkling, and then ekeo, which is to pour out. And so there are words, and if that had been the intention of this uh, scripture, that's what would have been used. Um, and so I think the meaning here has been obscured and lost over time. And now kind of the tradition of things is what has won out over what the intention was. And so the best of our understanding, what would have been baptism back then would have been full immersion in water. And that's why, in part, it's so important to churches of Christ. Um, I do want to talk about what happens at baptism. And uh, then we'll move on from baptism. And then Eric's preaching about it today, so you'll get a double dose of baptism. I'm just kidding. You're not, already. What are you preaching about? You might be. Okay. Jesus equals baptism equals, yeah, okay, it's all, it's all circular. Yeah, all right, so four things that happen to us at baptism. The first is death, burial, and resurrection, and this is kind of the key verse for that. I like this statement, so I'm going to read it, but is that we are united with Christ so that what happened to him historically happens to us spiritually and anticipates what will happen actually at his coming again. All right, so this meta metaphor is very rich, and it has all these symbols, but mainly the death, burial, and resurrection that happens in baptism, okay? The next thing is that we receive remission of sins. Okay, and so uh, the water cleanses kind of the filth of the flesh, or it cleanses us in an outward sense, but it's at that time that God does his work, and he does the inner cleansing, so it says this in other spots, but it's not the water that, that saves you or that cleanses you. It's God's action internally. Uh, and the, the outward um, action is sort of what represents that or is symptomatic of it. All right, the third thing is that we get the Holy Spirit. We are bestowed the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is what would distinguish this kind of baptism from John's baptism. So as you know, John the Baptist 
He didn't get the name for nothing. He was a baptizer, but his baptism was more for just almost like a ritual, like it cleansed you in that moment, but it wasn't uh, long-term, okay? So the next time you sinned, it would be done away with, okay? And so there was even Old Testament kind of ritual washing or baptism, immersion in water. Um, Christian baptism, it comes with the Holy Spirit, which is a whole nother deal, right? Um, I also like this about the Holy Spirit, is it provides a connection between the once-for-all effects of baptism. So the once-for-all effects, almost like a birth, are that we are pardoned and that we are justified. That happens in time. That happens at baptism. But then there's a continuing relation to the Christian life in sanctification that comes through the Holy Spirit. So think of it like your second birth. At that birth, I'm pardoned, I'm justified. We can write this date somewhere, and it's, it's important. But every day from then, we are sanctified. We're made more to be like Jesus. We're no longer in Adam at that point. We're now in Christ. The last thing is that we're incorporated into the church. And for some, whew, for some movements, this is kind of the main thing that baptism is seen as, that it's a sort of a public, they'll call it going public, or that it's, we're now baptizing you in as a member of this church. And I think it misses some of the elements of baptism, but I think it's part of it. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that it is by the Spirit that we're baptized into the body or the church. In Romans 6 and Galatians 3, we're baptized into Christ, into his body. And in that sense, we're baptized into the church. Um, and I would say this of baptism, and this is true of us as believers who are in Christ, who are, who are being sanctified, that we now wear the name of Christ. And so he strikes this difference of we're no longer defined by what used to define us. And so if what used to define us is that we were sinners, and specifically they were liars or cheaters or gossips or adulterers or whatever, those names no longer define us. And so in the same way that if you're a slave to sin, you're defined by that relationship, if you're no longer defined by that relationship, then why do you continue to live in that way? Okay? So it would be silly that if I graduated from high school, that the next week I showed up and I was like, I'm ready to go to school. It would make no sense. Like, you need to go. Okay, it's time for you to go. Um, you need to move on to the next stage, which is to be defined as a Christian who's in Christ. And baptism plays a role in that. Okay. On to chapter 7. These chapters go a little bit quicker. I know it's a lot to get through. Eric, how would you like to teach Romans 6 or 5 through 8 in 40 minutes? What if you had a clicker that didn't work? What do you think about that? Okay. Um, all right, so in Romans 7, it's all about the law, and this is one of the chapters in Romans that's super confusing because it uses a lot of these run-on sentences, and you can go read it for yourself. I'll try and simplify it down, but it's the idea that we have been released uh, from the law, and I think for us as Christians who have never lived under the Torah, this doesn't mean as much as it would have to Jews, but we could say that we have still created laws for ourselves that God has not created for us um, that we still live under, so whether that's legalism or whatever. I mean, there are laws that we live under, not the same thing, but whatever. Romans 7, 6, it says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. Um, even though we've, released, uh, we've been released by the law, the law makes us aware of sin, and it makes us want to break the law. So the analogy I like is, is the cookie in the cookie jar. And if you tell a child, now listen, I've got cookies in the cookie jar, but you do not need to get one of those. Do not do that. What does that kid want to do more than anything else? They want a cookie, okay? So don't tell me not to get a cookie out of the cookie jar. Just don't tell me about the cookies and I'll be better off. And that's what Paul effectively says about the law. It's that the law kind of inspired in him this desire to break the law. And that's true. Like when I see a speed limit sign of 35, it's like, I'm driving 45. You know, it inspires me this desire to break it. 
Uh, and he says this in 7 through 8. What, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? No, the law is not sin, right? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known uh, sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I think that point makes sense, right? Oh, my. You just got to, I got to stand there. That's what it takes. Okay. So then he goes on to this. Uh, I think this is a, a, just a classic question of, okay, well, if we're Christians, we're in Christ, if we're being sanctified, and really I want to live this way, then why do we keep doing the things that we shouldn't? Um, I ask that question of myself a lot. Like, why do I want to keep doing these things? And you feel like you make progress in it, but you still have a desire for things that aren't good. Uh, Paul says it like this in 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So it's kind of hard to follow what he's saying. But it's basically this thing where you almost feel like you're possessed by something, and that what possesses you is sin. And so these things you do, it's like I almost am powerless to deal with them. And that's what he calls sin. And so the question of, uh, you know, why do I keep doing things that I shouldn't is, is that we're slaves to sin still. And I think it's because we still think that sin will bring us joy or it will bring us peace, but it won't, okay? I think that's why we still do simple things. I think that's why we still desire simple things because we're not content with what we have and we feel like this thing over here, I still covet it and I still want it. And the law plays a role in that, it says. All right, he also asked this question on the poster that if creating... Ay, ay, ay. Sorry, guys, that was really frustrating to be in the crowd and slides aren't working and stuff. Apologize. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, then what was the point of giving Israel the law? That's on, on the poster, and they talked about it. And just real quickly, I think it's a good question. Well, if this law was always going to fail, what was the point of it? And uh, I think they make the point better than I will, is, is that first, the law, the Torah, was good. It showed Israel how to live. It gave us a pattern for how life should be lived in a way that pleases God. But the problem is Israel broke all the commands, right? Um, and in fact, the more laws that they received, the more guilty they became, all right? The laws did not fix the human heart, and that was the problem. And so it set up this paradox, which on this poster it shows the very bottom left. The paradox is the point. The paradox is, is that the more laws, the more guilt. Um, and as good as the law was, it was powerless to defeat the evil of the human heart. Okay, but we're freed from sin now. All right, let's quickly kind of get into chapter 8, and then we'll try and wrap up. I'll say of chapter 8, if the rest of these were hard to summarize, 8 is probably the hardest. Uh, John Piper actually did an entire year, not just on Romans, but on just chapter 8. So an entire year, we're going to do in about 7 minutes, okay? There's just a ton going on, and it's also one of these chapters, you've probably been asked, sorry that I always point to you, but he preaches for a living people, so he understands this is preaching, now this is teaching, I don't know. But um, there are some chapters where when you teach them, it's almost like the statements are so good that it's hard to deliver them in any different sort of way. So chapter 8 is a chapter that really just, it needs to be read and taken in, and I think a lot of what it says is self-evident. But again, I'll hit the high points here, okay? Um, the solution to all this, so we've been talking about sin and the law and sort of the hopelessness that comes with being a slave to sin. The solution is Jesus and the Spirit. And I'll just read a few verses here, 8, 1 through 4. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, of the Spirit that we talked about earlier, there's a couple other things that are true in, in verse 16 and in verse 26. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then in 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Okay, so the Spirit is the solution to sin, and it also gives us other, uh, other benefits, okay? I guess the tricky question is, well, if we're not seeing those benefits, what does that say about us? Or what does that say about our willingness to maybe live by the Spirit or to accept that? Um, I think that's maybe the hardest question about all this. Um, and so there is this sort of like battle or this tug of war. That's the best photo of tug of war that I could find. I liked it, so I used it. It's a good one, yeah. Um, of the flesh versus the spirit. I think this is sort of like the classic existential crisis between our head and our heart or what we know we should do and what we want to do. And this is like totally Romans 7 uh, here in, in Romans 8. But uh, 5 through 6, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So again, that word peace. And so how do we find peace? Peace that passes understanding and all that. Uh, well, it's to live by the spirit. And so if we're thinking about, well, what does it mean to live by the flesh? Well, it means to live in a worldly way. It means to, to seek sin at all costs, to be a slave to sin. And in that way, you're hostile to God uh, and you're not keeping God's law. It leads to death. We've said that already. And living by the Spirit leads to life and peace, which is the funny thing. It's what everyone wants, and yet we go the different direction. We go the opposite way from what leads to life. And you see people that hit rock bottom that begin to understand that. And it's like, what I've been doing is not working, and it would be insane to keep doing it. And so those are oftentimes the people that, that look to something like Christianity because it offers hope. Um, but then they also look to it because it's true, and it does bear out that if you live this way, it's much better, okay? And not just now, but later too. And this is what sanctification is about, that, um, that we become more and more led by the Spirit, that with that, like we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, we do get more joy and patience and peace and things like that. All right, so to kind of wrap up with a few of my favorite verses, does anyone know who that is? It's a young Eric Gentry. Sorry. It's my seventh Eric Gentry uh, shout-out today. No, this is Jimmy Allen. Okay, this is Jimmy Allen as a younger guy. I took Jimmy Allen's Romans class. It was the best class I ever took in college, and I guess in that way the best class I ever took because dental school classes were not very good. Um, no offense to the dental school professors who are listening right now, of which I am one. So, anyway. Uh, Jimmy Allen, if all the good or bad that you might want to say about Jimmy um, he was responsible, it says on his website, for 10,000 baptisms. 10,000. Isn't that crazy? You've got a long way to go. All right. Um, 10,000. But, um, and there was like 30,000 responses or something. I love that he has it kept up with. If you know anything about Jimmy Allen, he was a baseball player as like a teenager and maybe even played in college, and he never lost that like competitive edge. And so again, there's a lot of bad, a lot of good that you could say about the man. Uh, I choose to say good, but he was so competitive. And I always joke that he probably had a baseball card of himself for each season and how many baptisms he got. That was a good season right there. Um, but uh, he would always say this verse in class, and he was very loud and very boisterous. And it was like he was giving a sermon every day of class. 
it was a great class, but he would say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he would just shout out, who can be against us? Everybody, <laughs> everybody. And he would like say it over and over. I was like, okay. Uh, the point he's saying is, is that, well, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question by Paul, but well, everybody can. Certainly for the Romans and the church there, the Romans were against them. Other Jews that were coming back in, in some sense, were probably against them. Um, everybody can be against you. But the point that Paul is making is, is that despite whatever present sufferings we're dealing with, it doesn't compare to the ultimate end game and the ultimate life and the ultimate glory that we'll receive. And so in a grand sense, in a present sense, well, who can be against us? Everybody. It could be terrible. All right. We could have all kinds of issues. But in, in a grander sense, in an ultimate sense, in a future sense, uh, nobody can be against us. That's the point of this verse. Okay. In verse 37, it says that we're more than conquerors. And in this sense, we're on God's team. And so, you know, we joke about the Cavaliers and how they had LeBron and the rest of them were scrubs, basically. And they could have almost won the finals because they had this one great player. And in that way, it's almost like we're these scrubs on God's team and we can beat everybody. Okay, so God is better at basketball than LeBron James, okay? Very much better. His hook shot is incredible. But, um, and so we're on that team. So, of course, we're going to conquer anybody that comes up against us. We can conquer sin. We can conquer any suffering that comes to us. And then my favorite verse... And so when people ask, you know, as you're a teenager and on, you know, in adulthood, like, what's your favorite verse? From a very young teenage age, this is always the answer I, I would give, and it's the one that I still give as an answer, because I just love it. Um, so, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Still love those verses. Um, all right, and then on to our last slide. Does anyone want a computer? Because you can have one. Goodness gracious. All right. So this is the point that they make kind of as their closing point of this section, is that God wants to renew all creation. Uh, he wants to make it into a place where his love gets the final word. And the first step in that is the renewal of all human beings. And so it's not to say that God can't do it without us, because that's not true. But that is a part of how he gets to that point of where his love gets the final word. It's through renewing all human beings. And that starts with people choosing not to live by sin, but instead living by the Spirit. Okay? Now, if I were to ask you, what are the two greatest uh, commandments? And they're on the board, so you'd probably know. Uh, but what are the two greatest commandments? When we talk about the law, I talk about the Torah. Love God and love neighbors. Right? And that was a great answer at the time. It's a great answer now. It's what God's answer has always been. It's, it's to love one another, okay, in its simplest form. The beauty is, is that we're free to do that. There's nothing stopping us from doing that, if, if not sin, I guess. Um, this, is God, this is what God has always wanted from us, and this also helps achieve his goal of making creation a place where love gets the final word and where he gets what he wants, and that's by us loving other people. It's by loving him, following his commandments in that sense, but loving people too. It's not that hard. Um, and then lastly, I think the point of all this section, among other things, is, is that due to God's grace and this free gift that we didn't deserve, we should have peace and hope for a better tomorrow, and that should give us joy. Okay? I know this is like boiling this stuff down to some really simple stuff. We need to love God. We need to love people. That helps God achieve his goals. Not that he needs our help. Okay? Um, but also, we should live lives that are fruitful. 
Um, we should live lives that are joyful. We should live lives that are at peace. And when we're in those places, and you think about the times where you felt most peaceful or most at ease, you are a better person. I'm a better husband. I'm a better friend. I'm a better doctor. Um, and that's the way that God wants for us to live, and it can really transform this world. Okay, so next week, we're going to get into more chapter. I'm just going to go click the space bar. Okay. We're going to get into some more stuff. So these are the, the photos. If you were to Google Grant and David, this is what would show up. It's not bad. I think David's is like a passport photo, but anyway. Um, Grant is going to go through chapters 9 through 11. There's some really, is a, 5 through 8 was bad, but 9 through 11, I'd rather not have that. And then David gave himself a softball with 12 through 16. Really easy, easy, very easy stuff. I'm a, it's a shame to say. I'm just kidding. Um, but Grant's going to look at how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. So there's a few chapters on Israel. And then David will look at uh, unity, so how the gospel unifies the church. But that, guys, is it for today. So thanks for listening. And let me pause this. Sorry, I went. Okay, so that is it for Romans 5 through 8. Obviously, as I alluded to a few times throughout this, there was so much more that I could have said and probably should have said. So I invite you to read these chapters for yourself. Also in there alluded to uh, the, the, the Read Scripture videos from the Bible Project. You can find those. They are free either on their website or on YouTube. And I invite you to go watch that. It was only like three or four minutes, but it does a great job of breaking down this section of Romans. Again, better than I ever could. Next week, we've got Grant. He's going to teach on chapters 9 through 11 and look at Israel in particular. And then we'll wrap up the series in a couple weeks with David Flatt as he looks at chapters 12 through 16 on the topic of unity. I hope you're having a wonderful week. I look forward to being with you next week. If you're in the Memphis area, definitely come worship with us and learn with us together. Highland Church of Christ at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Um, but we will see you next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.